Welcome to the Surrender Podcast. Surrender is a collective of Christian groups and organisations from across Australia. We work in unity to share Jesus' call to seek his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We create spaces for the sharing of stories that motivate, support and equip people to love their neighbour, share good news and live justly, both locally and globally. Please note, Surrender provides spaces for conversation and storytelling and does not necessarily endorse the personal views of any one presenter. This is Bruce and Hannah Tucker's workshop entitled Crazy Love. In it, they share their own personal story as journeying together as father and daughter around mental health issues. They also discuss the fact that tragically often the church's attempts to help young people and their families journeying with mental illness can result in more hurt and pain. Okay, welcome to the CBM tent. Really nice to uh, be hosting this workshop this afternoon. If you'd like to know more about CBM and ending the cycle of poverty and disability, please come and talk to us and uh, perhaps get a cookie on the way out. This workshop's about crazy love with a question mark. So uh, it's really nice to be able to hand over to Bruce and, uh, and hear more all about that. Yeah, I would just like to introduce uh, my daughter Hannah um, because and on other daughter down here, Gabrielle, because mental health is one of those things that doesn't just impact one person, it impacts families, it impacts uh, wider community and net networks. So um, this is a bit of, what we're going to do today is together we'll share a little bit about the journey for us through our mental health situation uh, that impacted us. And along the way also, share some thoughts and we'll stop every now and then and look at look at a little bit deeper into some aspects of mental health for instance one area we want to we'll have a little discussion time around would be um, so what could the church perhaps do better for people with mental health what are some of the things that gets in the way for people who have mental health issues in getting support from church or even finding churches as a safe place that they can go to so to introduce myself then, uh, so my name's Bruce Tucker. Um, up until recently I was CEO of Concern Australia, one of the hosting agencies here. Um, I'm also a father of three daughters. Um, we, my wife and I have been pastors in a church. I have spent probably the last 30 odd years working with marginalised and difficult young people and have experienced mental health as something that I worked with but it was a totally new experience for me to then have to live with someone who had mental health and to work through all that issues. And as a Christian, as a pastor, as a father in those spaces, learning to actually understand and get some insight that about what, you know, how do I understand mental health? Because the church I found had some very interesting views on mental health and where well, what the basis of it is and where it comes from. And you'll see this workshop it talked about, you know, is it parenting? Is it um, sin? Is it uh, sickness? What is it that brings on mental health? And I'm not sure I'm going to give you classic answers for any of that, but as we share some of our journey and talk about some of the things we, that were real for us, perhaps you'll get some glimpses and some ideas from that. I want to really um, thank my daughter Hannah, who's very courageous in talking about her own journey um, and talking about some of the pain and some of the 
issues that came up uh, as we explored some of this. So I'll get her to introduce herself briefly. Hi everyone. Um, my name's Hannah and I'm very nervous. I am 22 years old. I have four different mental health diagnoses. I have a full-time job. I work in a school uh, as a receptionist, admin assistant. Um, I have a lovely family, um, but I live on my own. Um, I have a car, I make my own payments, all that sort of adult stuff. Um, and I still struggle, but I get there. Um, and I'm really looking forward to sharing some of what we've all been through with you guys um, in the hope that it'll give you maybe some different perspectives. And if you're someone who's gone through it, maybe just knowing that other people struggle through it just as much, and it's okay if you don't get things perfect. Um, one thing that we want to start off with is just that some of what we talk about might be a little bit difficult to hear. Um, we will be touching on things like self-harm, mental health, um, some sensitive topics, um, and I um, don't know anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just want to perhaps put that out as an awareness that we will be talking about some confronting things and it might cause some reactions in some of you for people you know, might even be for some of you in what you're exploring through yourself. And if that's the case, uh, you know, we do, uh, we will be happy to talk with you afterwards or if you have to get up and leave and find some space, do that as well. I don't feel like embarrassing that to do that. So, but the reality is that some of the duty, I guess for us as a family, what started where we became aware that this was not just a family that was dealing with a child that was difficult in their teenage years and that there was something more going on and it started with a letter and my wife went to our computer and was just went to do some things and found a letter that hannah had written on the computer um at, at where she was up during one of the nights and I'll read some parts of the letter. She says, I know there are plenty of stories out there about people who have been through depression, through abuse, drugs and survived, found God, become better people. I don't understand why it doesn't work that way for me. Bad things happen. I tripped and hurt myself and then I went back to God, but it just keeps happening. I'm not even going to try to pretend that my life is crap or that it's worse than anyone else's. But it frustrates me that it doesn't change, it doesn't get any better. I don't get it. Isn't life supposed to get better? Isn't God supposed to burst in and fix everything? Bring me back to Him? I've prayed, I've worshipped, I've attended church for years. Nothing has changed. If anything, has gotten worse. I don't mean to make them cry. I don't mean to hurt any of them. I guess tonight is the night I look at my life and I decide whether or not I'm worth anything. I know I treat everybody bad. It's just easier for me to distance them from me means I don't have to commit to them. Committing just causes pain. Maybe it's just time to say goodbye and leave them all. They will be sad and miss me. I just figure I'm not doing anything here, nothing that's of value, and I'm hurting more people than I'm helping. I don't really think it would wreck anyone enough that makes it worth staying. I'm tired of being angry. I'm tired of being in pain. It hurts so bad I can barely think anymore. 
I don't want to try anymore. I don't like seeing people hurt. It's why I try to help them. It hurts me to see them hurt. Cutting always helps, it's a release. Of course, I always feel guilty afterwards and I have to hide it from everyone. It helps though and I like the blood. It tastes good, I could have been a vampire in another life if there's such a thing. I wonder what the best way to die is. Slitting, suffocation, drugs I think. We have enough that I could get to kill me. I don't think there is anything else I want to say. I've told you all now how I am feeling. I'm sick of the pain and the stress of the people. I give up, I'm weak. I can't deal with the everyday, so I'm going goodbye. I don't know what you think about what it would be like as a parent to read that. And the daughter that you've loved, that you have had such hope for, believed for, you know, even had a prophecy at some time over their life to say this was going to happen. And to have her in a place where she couldn't, at that particular time, see that life was worth living, the pain was too much. And yeah, so, I mean, for us as a family, that was very confronting. That was very, you know, what do you do with that? I mean, I'd been around the sector, I know, and I knew enough where to reach out to. I knew to reach out to uh, mental health services and cat teams and stuff because I'd done the work. I'd hate to be a family that actually didn't have that information and would struggle and say, what do I do with this? Do I take this for real? And, or perhaps didn't believe it even. So that was the reality. That was for us as a family, my wife and I saying, what do we do with that? So Hannah, you're slightly different for you because you, yeah, you were. Um, so this letter was found when I was about 15. Um, I think I was in year eight, maybe. Um, but for me, I had been feeling not so on top of things since about year five or six. That's when everything started to feel a little bit more hard, when getting out of bed got a little bit more difficult, when keeping my temper got harder as well. Um, and so I knew all of this was happening, um, but I had this idea in my head that um, talking about it <clears throat> meant that other people would struggle. And I was trying to protect the people around me, and the best way I knew how to do that was to not tell anyone, and to try and pull myself back together on my own. Um, <clears throat> and that meant that I was going through every day feeling not so great and I didn't want to go to school and um, at first I think everyone around me just took that as she's being a teenager because we all hit that point eventually um, but then it got a little bit more um, a little bit more than that and I remember dad saying to me we've reached a point where this isn't just like you're a teenager we feel like there's more to it than that um, but, yeah, so I think finding the letter meant that everyone else finally realised where I was at and it was tough for me because I felt embarrassed and I felt like this secret and this stuff that I tried to hold together for so long um, was no longer mine and, yeah, we moved on from there. So we went to a consultation and Dad will tell you more about what happened there. As a 15-year-old going to a mental health service, one of the things that we discovered was that they're very reluctant to actually say 
what you've got as mental health and give you a diagnosis. They want to say, well, we can see some things there, but we're not going to actually nail it down at this stage. So at this stage, we went to a really good psychiatrist, though, and he said, I can see three big things there. So you've got anxiety, major anxiety issues, and she was having panic attacks, and she was having times when um, she just couldn't handle people and handle situations. Depression, so there were days when she just couldn't get out of bed. There was days when everything just seemed so bleak and so black. And in the midst of all that, he also identified that she was having major sleeping problems. Um, and so he, and he drew this, I remember him very well, he drew this triangle and he said, now the trouble is that the sleeping can cause the anxiety and cause the depression. Um, depression can cause the sleeping and can cause the anxiety and the anxiety can cause the other two as well. And he says, which one do we treat? Which one do we actually um, try and deal with? Because, you know, trying to treat all three at the same time is going to be very difficult. So, um, in the end, I think they mainly trying to try to choose to deal with the depression, didn't they? And do you want to talk a little bit about some of the story with the medications that you went through? Um, for anyone who's been on medication, you will understand that it can be an incredibly frustrating process, especially for mental health, because they pick the one that's the most common and they put you on the lower dose. And then if it doesn't work or if you get weird side effects, then they try putting it up a little bit to see if it goes away and you have to wait the appropriate amount of time for it to have settled if it's going to and then they go well maybe this isn't going to work so then they take you off of it and then you go through the withdrawal of that and then you have to wait until that's out of your system and then you get the next drug and you get to go through all over it again um, and I got some weird side effects so I think I've been on so so many different types of meds that they tried me on um, and some of them knocked me out for three or four days some of them made me more agitated some of them gave me heart palpitations um, there was one that gave me asthma um, and really it's just frustrating because you go to the doctor and you do what they tell you to do and you end up with more side effects that makes it feel worse and you start to wonder if it's ever actually going to feel better um, and one of the most frustrating things about being on medication for depression is that one of the most common side effects for any depression medication is that it will make you more suicidal for the first three to four weeks. And so not only is it not making it better, but it also plunges you down for those weeks while you're adjusting to it. Um, so yeah, that's medication. Sometimes like, I don't know if you watch the, sh the um, TV show House, one of the premises that the house goes on is they have someone come in that they've got some mystery illness that they and so they try all these different tests and all these different things let's try this treatment see what happened oh that didn't go well let's that's what it felt like in the medication cycles it was just we're not sure what it is but let's try this and see what the impact this has um and yeah so we went through that uh, went through different counseling situations and do you want to talk a little bit about some of those? Uh, I would also like to add that I did eventually find a medication that worked. <laughs> um, it's not completely hopeless. Um, they, they eventually um, put me on one and the side effects that I was showing 
cause them to go, well, everyone who shows that side effect has this, so we'll put you on that medication, and then I finally found something that worked. So um, that was good, and I feel a lot better now that I'm not being a guinea pig anymore. Um, Counselling. So I, after seeing the psychiatrist, yes, um, we only had a few sessions with him, and so then I started on the long train of finding a counsellor to talk to. I think I saw maybe eight to ten in a very short amount of time. Um, and we tried them from all different places. They all didn't work out. <laughs> um, some of them... Some of them wanted to try CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. Um, and I would like to think that I'm fairly intelligent and what that means is that because the way they explain it is they go this is how you do it and then you take this step and then you take this step and now we're going to put it in a real life situation and we'll take you through it but then the next time I went back I already knew what they were talking about and I was ready to implement that into my life and move forward I understood CBT what's the next thing and they wanted to show me this step, and then this step, and then this step, and then we'll put it in an everyday situation. And it was just so repetitive, and I didn't feel like they understood that I understood them. Um, so, personally, not a great fan of CBT, but I have found other great things that work. Um, there were counsellors who talked down to me. That was a big problem that I had. I, because I was only 15, people would talk to me like I was a child and I felt like everything I was going through I was at a point where I wanted to be spoken to like an adult um, and so I would leave counselling sessions just feeling very belittled um, and I refused to go back to them um, and there were others who I went to who wanted to sit down and pray with me for the entire session um, and I think I was looking for a hands-on approach this is what we're going to do to try and make it better. Um, and I walked out of there feeling sort of guilty that I didn't feel better. So, <clears throat> yeah, lots and lots of different counsellors. So, we tried a lot of things um, across that time. The, it got to a point though where it wasn't just the depression and the anxiety. We were also seeing a lot of really is really strong emotional outbursts including rage anger and I get it got to a point where it actually became quite dangerous at times around Hannah and I, I will give credit to Hannah for this even though it was one of the hardest things we walked walk through she realized that um, staying in the family she's going to hurt somebody and maybe hurt one of her sisters and it really came to a time when she actually, when she did strike one of them, that she felt like I can't stay in the house because I'm not safe and, and a lot of my anxiety and stuff is coming from the family as well, whether it's meant, we're in their attempt to try and love me and care for me. So 16 years of age, Hannah made the decision to leave home. Now, um, so here's me, I'm, you know, I work in this field. I was actually lecturing students in, uh, on homelessness at the time at RMIT 
talking about youth homelessness and, and here's my own daughter um, leaving home because of mental health issues. So that was really, um, that whole dynamic was really interesting. The other response, the other space there was the response we got from some of our good friends and some people high in the church and leadership in church um, and some of their interesting responses uh, about what we should do and how we should handle it. One of them was, you know, you need to put up your boundaries and you need to say you're not coming back to the house until you change this, until you do this and do that. And, and um, you need to just protect the rest of your family because this is evil and it's going to actually get, you know, create all these issues in your family if you're allowed to get in there. Um, so push it away and when she, when she gets herself together, then you, build, then you can actually look at building relationships. Probably the one pastor I can remember who really said to us, one of the best things I ever heard was, whatever you do, whatever happens, no matter how far it gets, do anything you can to maintain the relationship. Do anything you can to stay connected um, and that you're still there. Even if you don't like the behaviour, you're still there with them as a person and you still love them as, you, as your daughter. So, do you want to just talk a little bit about that time, um, going out and couch surfing and everything? So, I got to this point, I wasn't making it out of bed to go to school. I was fighting with everyone in the house from the moment I walked in the door till I got to my bedroom door. Um, I couldn't be around them. Um, I would have massive fights to the point where I would walk out the door and leave and go stay at a friend's house for three or four days, calm down, come back, and within half an hour I was back out of the door again. Um, and it just got a bit too much for all of us, I think. Um, and there was one day that I just snapped and I slapped my sister in the face and that was when I knew that it was going too far. I didn't know how to control me. Mum and Dad, I didn't feel like they knew how to help, which they didn't. We were all a bit lost at that point. Um, so I moved out um, and I started couch surfing. So every six months I would end up in a new place. Um, staying with friends is only a temporary thing. I was paying rent, but they didn't have space, or one of my friends got pregnant, one of my friends moved out, one of my friends, um, the parents sold the house, and I was just bouncing from place to place. Um, I was still in the same emotional space, um, but I had a new group of friends, and their solution to things was, we'll just drink until it feels better. So. Um, I, instead of doing that, ended up babysitting a lot of really drunk friends, which made them feel really good, but I wasn't really being helped at this point. <clears throat> um, I went back to school a couple of times, and the people I ran into were telling me how much of a terrible daughter I was, didn't I know how much I was hurting my family, didn't I know how upset my sisters were, why couldn't I just get over myself and go home? Um, and so I ended up stopping going to school because I felt judged and pushed away. Um, and I had a youth group that I was going to. 
there were two or three people in the youth group that knew from way, way back that something wasn't okay. When I started self-harming, they were the people that I reached out to. Um, the youth group I was going to was running on a system of we pray together about things. And so if you had anything that was going wrong, you went and you prayed about it and then you felt better and then you went on with your week and you were okay. And if you didn't feel better, there was this big pressure that if you're not feeling better, if your illness isn't gone, if your life hasn't sorted itself out, you're not praying hard enough or you're not good enough of a Christian and you need to just pray harder and why aren't you feeling better yet? And so I started to isolate myself from my connections at youth because I felt this guilt that they were praying and they were trying to help me and I wasn't being fixed and what was wrong with me? So I lost a lot of friends, um, some of which still won't talk to me because from their point of view, I left them when they were trying to help. Um, thankfully, I got my family back. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's sort of what that section was like. So one of the things that I did to help me cope, um, because there's no way I would have gotten through this without at least one or two coping strategies, um, was I started to write. Um, and I eventually shared that with my dad, um, which gave him some really good insight into where I was. So I'm going to share some um, things that I've written. Um, so this is one that I wrote. It's called Lost. They tore at me, merciless. I tried fighting until I ended up tearing at myself, no longer sure of what I was fighting. There's nothing left of me. I don't know who I am. I can't trust myself. How do you become someone in this world when you don't know who you really are? Um, and that was, it was my only way of really expressing where I was at because I didn't have a whole lot. I didn't have any other way of giving those thoughts and emotions out. How do we see or understand mental health issues developing in a young person? I think the world view we hold can impact how we actually then work with that young person or how we then help a family that might have a young person with mental health. So what is the world view we hold? Um, and our world view is that view that guides our behaviour, guides the way we respond, guides the way that we think about people and value people and treat them. Um, Catherine Green McKnight, who is a pastor and has suffered with depression for most of her life, um, she talks about light when all is dark, our theology makes all the difference in fighting depression. So what is our theology or worldview that we have around uh, mental health? Is it abnormal, maladjusted, disordered, a disease, a lack of responsibility? Because they're all words that are used at various times when describing people with mental health issues. I like to think, you know, I had this, did this exercise once where abnormal. I come out to surrender and I run around and meet a lot of people here who a lot of people in our society would say are abnormal. 
that they are countercultural, that they are very different to the worldview that most people live under and, the, and their value systems. So, what is abnormal? Um, maladjusted, you can go through the Bible and find some very interesting characters in the Bible um, who, if we were to diagnose them basically through what mental health, some of the diagnosis today, you would say some of those people are crazy. <coughs> Samson, for instance. Um, he would be, you know, narcissistic, uh, you know, very, very big in those sorts of areas, and would potentially say he would be have a personality disorder of major proportions. Um, disordered disease, lack of responsibility, and aligned with all that is why do people then end up, end up with mental health? So, is it the parenting? Is it sin? Is it uh, the way that they have lived their life and the things that have happened to them? Or is it just that they've been sinned against? Um, now, I'm going to say to you, there is never just one factor. There's not something you can pinpoint and say, this is the cause of mental health. We do know that some spiritual, there are spiritual issues that create mental health issues. It's obvious that there are, and it's obvious that some things can be addressed from a spiritual point of view of dealing with some stuff. Um, we know that Galatians 6-7 talks about what a man so is he, you know, he reads. So the way we live can impact us. And we know that from research that you live a very uh, stressful life, it'll bring on mental health issues in you. Uh, you live in a very, uh, we, we um, in my work at Concern Australia when I was there, we dealt with a lot of traumatised kids. And we know that traumatised kids have a different worldview in a way that they handle life. They're very hypersensitive to things. They um, can be very anxious very easily. They have work walk around in very high stress levels. They react to things that they shouldn't react to. Um, they have a very issues of rejection and abandonment. Uh, they're quite strong. So we know that trauma and not having good parenting can impact someone growing up and create problems. Um, a study they did in the United States called the ACE study, which has looked at adverse child experiences, and they looked at the more adverse child experiences that someone had, the more likelihood that they would have bad outcomes later in life. And they were included things like um, whether they would become alcoholics, whether they would um, have high stress levels, even whether they would have a, get cancer, have heart attacks, and believe it or not, they tended, people with more adverse child experience had more accidents in life. Um, and it might be they just took more risk or the way that they felt about themselves. So we know those things. Is it demonic though? You know, there's a real lot of sense where in church circles you still have a viewpoint that all mental health is demonic, um, that it comes from sin and that's the basis of it. Is it based around disobedience to God, failure to allow scripture to guide our lives? And should a Christian actually be subject to depression or anxiety disorder? Now, they're the good questions that you need to work through in, uh, in making some sense of mental health or if we're going to work within this community and come alongside them. And if our worldview is that we come from some of those positions, we're going to come from a very spiritual way of trying to treat it and, and try to get alongside people. There used to be the biblical counselling movement um, very strong on those sort of ideals and that's where they came from. You know, that this idea that it's a bad feelings as a result of sin. It's rooted in the occult. Uh, 
It's, it's a flight from responsibility. Feelings of fear, anger and sadness are sinful. Counselors should develop a godly response. And psychiatric medications are mind-ordering that stops a person getting the mind in the right place. Now, in certain cases, some of those things are true. And I'm not going to dismiss all. But if you put that over that sort of picture over everybody who has a mental health issue, they're not going to get very far. And many of them are going to get, feel rejected and get pushed aside. Um, you know, is there a link between mental illness and sin? And at least last one. I wonder, you know, if somebody comes to the front for prayer or they come and see you for prayer, what do you actually pray for with someone with a mental health? Um, what are you actually asking God to do there? And, I, I'm, and I'd say that in a mind, let's have a look at this idea that someone with mental health often has major changes in the way that their brains are structured and ordered. They have chemical changes in their brains. Um, so we know depression, that the, the drug, serotonin has a big impact on depression and the way the serotonin system works in your, in your brain. And in some ways, if, if I'm coming and saying I'm going to pray for this person that depression will leave them, I'm almost saying, God, come along and re-chemicalise their brain and reshape their thinking in their brain as I pray for them. If God actually did some of the things that we would pray for in those situations, I think some people would go crazy. Um, you know, they wouldn't know who they are anymore. They wouldn't know how to think. They wouldn't know how to handle life. They wouldn't know how to actually address just day-to-day walking out issues. So I'm not saying we don't pray. I'm saying perhaps think about what we pray. Maybe we want God to come and put you know, supportive people around them. We want God to give them strength to face up and work through their issues. We want God to begin to reframe their thinking patterns and re- realign how they think and how they handle life. We might want to put them in safe places and belonging places that they can find love and care that will help them make those transformations. Because what, we've, what I find is that you cannot walk the journey back to health, even from mental health, unless you're in a safe place, unless you're in a place where you feel like you belong, where you can work through all the issues of who you are as a person in a safe way without getting judged and pushed aside because of some, sometimes you're making mistakes and blow it all up. Um, I already mentioned this idea that health, mental health, there's a lot of research now that talks about mental health is in the brain, it, how it restructures the brain. We know environments can make a major difference in behaviours of people. You put somebody, take someone out of a really toxic environment and put them in a safe, loving environment, over time they will change their behaviours and change the way they react, change the way that they handle life. Um, yeah, so hereditary factors, chemical impacts, trauma, worldviews, lots of different things that can create mental health. And we need to be aware of those and think through those before we make judgments about why someone might be in the situation they're in. Here's a really interesting one uh, that a lot of research is showing that adolescents today are really having a huge impact with insomnia problems, which was one of the issues that Hannah had. Uh, 40% of adolescents have symptoms of insomnia. And only 22% of those seek help. And, and a lot of those actually not very much help, often just medication. Um, 
but we know that insomnia creates uh, significant distress in functional impairment of, of youth in population. So there's something to think about, you know, what is creating insomnia in our youth, what is causing them to live in those patterns. And that's creating a lot of stress and distress and anxiety disorder and depression that, that exists in there. So, alright, I uh, went through that. Right, so, diagnosis. This was probably, for Hannah, was the turning point. When finally we got a diagnosis that actually said it. I think because I'd worked in the field and worked with a lot of these kids, I had already, in my mind, thought, this is what we're seeing. Because I'd worked with kids like this and I was seeing the same patterns of behaviour. So, um, to diagnose with borderline personality disorder uh, and also manic depression. And you said two others. Anxiety and depression. Right, okay. Which are symptoms of these two anyway. So, very quickly, when we talk about diagnosis, we're talking about categories that um, they do through what they call the DSM or Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which now in its fifth version. Um, this is what this is the second version. You can see how big they've grown over time. Um, so we are in an industry that actually is more and more diagnosing people with everything, and, and I'm a bit wary of just having a diagnosis. And, and I'm putting these up to here to say diagnosis is not the be all and end all. Yeah, but it does give you guidance. It does give you a sense of what are we looking at and what may work and what what's going on for that person. Um, so what is borderline personality disorder? Some of you may know it, some of you may not. The term borderline is perhaps a bit, doesn't quite describe and capture exactly what it is. It, it sort of indicates maybe you've got mental health or maybe you haven't. But that's not the case. It, it was more a case where they couldn't quite actually work out where to diagnose it because it had aspects of what they call psych, psychotic uh, side of mental health, but also aspects of personality disorder. Um, so it sort of sat in the middle between the two and was more pervasive than even what someone who might just have personality disorder or, or just had psychosis of some sort. The DSM says it's a pervasive pattern of instability of interpersonal relationships, self-image and effects and marked impulsivity beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts and seen in at least five areas of the following. And these criteria, abandonment fears, unstable intense relationships, identity disturbance, impulsivity, suicidal or self-injurious behaviour, Effective uh, emotional instability, emptiness, anger, psychotic, like perpetual distortion. Now, I put all that up. Um, what I want is Hannah to say a little bit about what that actually means in real world in living. You know, what does that mean in living that out and being that person who has some of those things? So, I found that there's a big difference between reading things in a book and getting to know a person. Um, so the others, my perspective of all of this is completely different. Some days I think I'm completely normal and then you ask the person that I'm spending the day with and they go, she's really not coping well today. So there's also just this complete lack of understanding of how I'm coming across to other people sometimes. Um, abandonment fears, so in relationships that I've had, I get very scared that people are going to leave me in friendships as well um, and that generally turns into 
a lot of clinginess, a lot of very quick attachment to people, very intense attachment. I met them three weeks ago, they're my best friend, they're the, my favourite person in the whole entire world. Um, but if I feel like they're pulling away, I can also quickly turn around and decide to push them away so that I don't get hurt because I've done the pushing away there. Um, unstable and intense relationships, definitely had a few of them. Um, I wouldn't say that I've had the best taste in guys that I've dated and that might have also contributed to the relationship not going so well, but um, I can see looking back, now that I've had a diagnosis, a lot of things make a lot more sense. So my behaviour, I would react impulsively, I would be angry, I would tear someone apart because how dare you forget that you needed to make dinner tonight. And it turns into a five-day argument. Um, and then I look back at it two weeks later and I go, well, that was a bit silly because it was just dinner and they did go and fix it later and things get blown out of proportion very, very quickly. Um, identity disturbance, so I went through a lot of not really knowing who I am. Um, and part of me getting control of that again was making some goals. Um, and I also picked up some quirks, so I really, really like ducks. I have 150 rubber ducks, I have over 150 rubber ducks at home. Um, so that became something that was mine. Um, and that I decided was something that defined me. I do not eat the colour orange um, or anything that tastes like orange because really it's a really gross colour and why would you put that in your mouth? Um, and I really don't like vacuum cleaners because while I was going through all of this, because I wasn't sleeping, I had intense migraines and headaches. Loud noises didn't agree with me. Um, and even though that's not as much of a problem anymore, I still can't be in the same room as a vacuum cleaner. So I started to pick up things so that I had a basis of this is who I am and I can build on this now. <clears throat> um, I was self-harming. Um, I am definitely emotionally unstable, more so than everyone else because we all have a little bit of emotional instability. Um, the emptiness and the anger were coming daily. Um, it's something that's not affecting me as much anymore now that I'm on medication. Um, can't really think of an example for the last one. I, I went through a stage where I started to see things um, and I spoke to my psych about it and he told me that I had a really good imagination and that didn't sit too well with me. Um, and so I left him as well. Some other names that they've used for borderline personality disorder are emotionally unstable personality disorder, emotional intensity. So BPD sufferers feel emotions earlier, more deeply and for longer than others do. Um, it affects 2 to 5% of the population. Uh, symptoms appear mid-teens to early adults. Now, it says up here, I put up there, women three times are diagnosed. But there's a lot of research that actually say men perhaps are just as high a should have as just as much a higher diagnosis, but they tend to get conduct disorder or uh, other disorders rather than um, BPD um, because they tend to act it out very in a lot of anger and a lot of uh, impulsive ways. And there's some research that say within jails you'll find quite a high proportion of males in jail that suffer symptoms that appear to be BPD symptoms. So. 
uh, who haven't learnt to handle life. They're often uh, creative, intelligent people, and um, so we, they have found, you know, that some BPT sufferers end up end up being heads of companies, running major corporations, can organise things and do things at that level, but have their marriages break down all over the place, and they have no real circle of friends and those sorts of things. Uh, so they can really audit their mind and have really use those creative spaces at times, uh, but not actually use it in a, in a social pattern to actually make sense. And causes, um, I've read that much material that, and they've gone all over the place with what are the causes of BPD. There, there is some correlation with trauma in the life and we can go back and look at uh, a pattern where Hannah had some really bad bullying in grade five, six and seven at school. Um, we can talk about the fact that across some of those years we moved from South Australia where she was had a very close relationship with a number of people over to Victoria and had to leave all that behind and start going to a new school. We could talk about um, the first boyfriend she had and that really he displayed all the signs of uh, domestic violence even at that stage as a boyfriend and manipulation and control of, of her. We could see some of those patterns there, but I could probably go back and now as an adult think back when she was a child and could see issues of abandonment and uh, issues of clinginess and issues of need that were, even back then, were perhaps not quite normal for uh, what we saw in our other children. Um, but at the time you just think, oh, this is who they are, they're our daughter, she's loving us and she wants to be with us. And, um, but you could see some things in retrospect that you never realised at the time. There's also some research that talks about that BPD sufferers, there's um, there's an imbalance in uh, the serotonin system in their brain and in the dopamine system in their brain so that they feel stress quicker and about things that uh, other people don't, and but they're not able to modulate it as well or actually... Um, so growing up with that sort of behavioural pattern can create the place by, by adult, by teenhood, you know, you're starting to see some of the things you've seen. Um, so those deep feelings of insecurity, being out of control, swing between high positive regard and extreme disappointment really quickly, impulsiveness to feeling overwhelmed, um, intense emotions. So this um, idea, you know, that they can intent, they have intense grief instead of just sadness. That they have shame and humiliation instead of just being mildly embarrassed by a situation. Uh, rage instead of just being annoyed by somebody or something that's happened. Uh, panic instead of just nervousness about something. So that's what we got diagnosed with and that's what we began to understand and begin to work through. Um, just a little, little, another part of our family. So my wife tells the story, probably tells it heaps better than me. But she remembers... Um, saying, you know, there was a part of a holding on to this, I'm going to hold on to uh, my pride a bit, you know, and, I, and Hannah's going to have to come some distance towards me. A bit. And she said, back in my mind, this is what I'm thinking, you know, uh, I know she's got some issues, but um, I want her to, you know, she has to make some steps back towards me before I can um, 
come and love her and, and you know, really be in that space again. Hannah called her um, and said, can we meet? And she said, I'll come down by train from Craigieburn and meet you at the station at uh, Preston. So my wife goes down to the station at Preston and Hannah had a bit of a... There were times when she would often not turn up after agreeing to come and, and often would uh, be late anyway if she... Uh, so train comes in. <laughs> train comes in and people come off and my wife is getting saying, oh, she's missed the train. She hasn't, or she hasn't come again. And this, she sees this person and she says, in, she says to this day, she says, I saw this homeless person walking down the station towards me with no shoes and just in drags and stuff, hair all over the place. And I'm thinking, I hope they don't come and talk to me. I'm not in a space where I can really share with someone at the moment. I'm just, because you were angry and a bit upset. And it was Hannah walking up. And she said, um, you know, my heart broke that here's my daughter. And I'm thinking she's a homeless person that I didn't want to talk to. And she said that all that pride got put away and I just knew, she said from that day, I had to do everything I could to maintain and stay in the relationship and to keep loving her no matter what was going on. So that was a powerful point for her in uh, stepping back in, in in those spaces. Do you want to just briefly talk some of the step-by-step things that helped you move back once you had the diagnosis? So I got my diagnosis, we started the medication game, um, I getting on a medication that helped was so, so important in my journey to getting to where I am today um, because suddenly things weren't as big and I could think and process things um, and somebody described it to me as most of your journey to getting well again is going to be therapy and talking and learning new ways of coping with things and the medication is just there to calm your brain down enough that you can process what we're saying to you so that we can start to move forward and that's exactly what happened when we finally found one um, <clears throat> after that the next big step for me was finding solid housing um, so it's an organisation called Mind Australia and they have youth housing for people with mental health diagnoses. Um, and I was accepted to move in there and having a place to call home, having a safe place where I had workers on site so that if I wasn't doing so well, if I needed someone to talk to, I could just walk over and talk to them, was so important to me it was the big turning point and from the moment I moved in there everything started to look a lot better um, I did a short course in sign language to get some confidence about finishing studying because I left school at the beginning of year 11 um, and I had tried the next year to do year 11 again and hadn't gotten much further so I started studying I did a course in community service work um, which I just completed so that's pretty cool. Um, I started volunteering at the school that I'd left and I was volunteering there for almost two years um, when they've offered me a paid position and that's where I am now. 
um, but just having the housing and the support and being able to reconnect with my family very slowly because I'm very stubborn um, made so much difference and got me to a place where I could start to heal a bit and start to pull myself back together and work on a future. And now we're going to take a break for another poem. Um, something you need to know about pain. There is one thing I want to tell you about pain. It hurts. More than you could possibly imagine. It sears through me, almost causing me to cry out. I bite my lip, trying to hold it in, because I can feel it bursting out of me. It starts from deep inside me, and grows and grows, until I just cannot contain it. It cries to be let out. My head pounds as I try to maintain control, but in the end, it is too much, and I give in. Slowly sinking into the darkness, waiting for someone to rescue me, waiting for the day that will never come. That was five years ago, which seems like a lifetime ago. Um, I feel a bit better now. So self-harming was another aspect which we didn't cover much at that start, but it was that was pervasive at the, when she was 15 as well, but well hidden for quite a while. Though. Um, and, and I think she had, there were from even up until 18 or 19, there were times when she would go back to it um, as a coping mechanism. So I just want to just briefly talk about what it meant for you. Um, Self-harming, I'm, another thing worth mentioning is that I don't remember everything. Um, sleep deprivation kills your memory retainment. So I don't actually remember how I started self-harming, but I re remember when I realised it was a problem, and I remember the first time that I told someone, and I remember the first time that someone tried to make me stop by telling me, you need to stop for me, and can you promise me that you won't? Um, and then I remember the disappointment when they found out that I hadn't. Self-harm for me was a way of coping. It was everything is getting too much and I need some way of letting it out. Um, it gives you a rush of endorphins which makes you feel better and it stops you thinking and it takes all of that inner emotional pain that you're feeling and it makes it something physical, um, makes it something more real and it makes it something that you can see and go that's why it hurts. Um, and it's something that there are still times that I get that urge. Um, I think it's something that I'm going to be dealing with for the rest of my life um, because it was such a strong part of my life. It was just things are not okay. If I do this, it will feel better at least for a little bit. And um, every time that I slipped back, <clears throat> once I started to get better, I found that the distance was longer and um, I was able to talk about it and say this has happened and I need support because I'm not doing well. Um, but it's a hard thing to give up and especially when it feels like that's the only thing that can help when you're in that space. So self-harm is not just cutting. I mean, uh, some people self-harm in all sorts of different ways. So just, yeah, just put that out there. There's not just only cutting. But people who do cut 
can also get very good at hiding it and they cut in areas that are not obvious. Um, so um, it's a, it is very common though for people who have personality disorders and who are struggling with anxiety spaces because it is a control mechanism. Um, arms, wrists, thighs, stomachs, breasts, buttocks, neck, and even genitalia are not uncommon for people to cut. So um, just be aware of that. Um, people cut because it works. It actually helps them cope. It helps them deal with stuff. It's something they control. Uh, temporary distracts from the personal pain used to escape. Um, it has been put out there that sometimes there's a manipulative attention seeking thing. Um, I want to say that there might be a small group that will do it for that reason, but bulk of people are not doing it just to get attention. They're doing it because it actually helps them. So if we're going to help support them, we're going to have to think of how are we actually going to help them deal with their pain, deal with the out of controlness, deal with the, the things that are going on in their life and help them work through those. Because that's what they need support around, not being told you stop it or, you know, that's wrong or made to feel shame or feel um, more more inclined, you know, that there's something wrong with them because they're doing it still. Um, they don't, at the time, they really don't have anything else that they can hold on to that actually helps them cope in those spaces. So just be aware of some of that. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons that people have come up with about why people self-harm from easy tension, escaping feelings of depression, escape feeling of numbness, relieve feelings of anger, frustration, intense emotion, regain control over one's body, maintain the sense of security or feeling of uniqueness, to obtain a feeling of euphoria. So it actually does release you know, endorphins and stuff. Um, express coping with the feelings of alienation as a response to self-hatred or guilt as a symptom of more severe mental health. So. There's lots of different reasons and you can't really say this person is cutting because of just this one reason. There might be a number of things going on for them. Uh, so, And each of those might have different ways that you might help a person deal with that stuff. So it's not really simple. Some clues you might look for if someone is self-harming. Unexplained scars are cut. Wearing long sleeves or scarf when it's quite hot. or when it's Obviously that, that looks a bit funny. Um, Lots of bracelets or wristbands, collections of cutting implements in their rooms or in their bags and stuff. Blood around them in tissues and different things on a regular basis. Uh, first aid supplies being used up regularly. Um, periods of needing to be alone, locking doors when not done previously and stuff. So just some things to look for. I love this little quote, um, when everything feels like chaos, controlling anything feels like comfort. Um, and for many people with mental health, that is why cutting and lot, or lots of other things that they do, behaviours, actually are a coping mechanism to help them get through the chaos. So, Hannah, do you want to share some things that helped you across this time and some things that hindered you across this time? Doesn't have to be exhaustive. <laughs> I was trying to think about what helped me through my journey. Um, apart from getting the stable housing, getting the diagnosis, getting the medication that worked. There were so many people who I came into contact with who tried to help and social workers as well. Um, and I think the main thing that they 
helpful ones did was that they just listened when I needed to talk. They didn't actually have to have answers, but just knowing that there was someone there who would listen and not retort with a judgment um, was one of the most important things. And those were the people that I kept closer. And I think just being reminded that people were there. Something I've noticed is that there are a lot of people around me, but I didn't always realize it. Um, there was one day at school that I showed up to school um, and the girls in my class had written a card for me and they'd all signed it and told me that they were there. And it was the first time that entire year that I had realized that they knew that I was upset and that they cared. And it wasn't that they weren't trying to show or they weren't being there. It was just that I was so blind to it that it hadn't even occurred to me that there were people who I could lean on. Um, as for hindering, I think, especially with BPD, stigma has been a really difficult thing for me. Um, I've had workers who've said to me, you have BPD, you are this way and I refuse to let you manipulate me, um, or who've said, you're like this because you are BPD. Um, I've had people who just tell me that I'm a bad person, a lot of judgments. Um, I think needing to be forgiven and knowing that I'm forgiven would also be something that was really important to me at the time. I think that's a good quick answer off the top of my head. <coughs> I think we covered that. We covered that. Yeah. Um, one thing I very quickly wanted to say is that, and we are in the CBM tent, and I want to just highlight that mental health is a disability. And I don't know we always consider it that way. Um, it, it's, it's not a major killer, uh, as some other things are, but it actually it kills life around a person in a big way. Um, it's the third largest health issue in Australia after heart disease and cancer, and it's, and it's getting stronger and stronger and emerging earlier in a lot of teenage lives. Um, some com just comparing with physical health, for instance, Moderate depression is similar to a relapse of multiple sclerosis, severe asthma, or deafness. So just think about that for a minute. That's moderate depression in how it impacts your life and in going forward and doing things on a day-to-day -day basis. Yep. So one of the common ways that they'll describe BPD um, and how it feels to have it is that if you could imagine that you had third-degree burns on every inch of your body, and everything that came into contact with you is just searing pain. And that is a good picture of what it's like to have BPD, especially um, not treated um, in its earliest stages once it's set in. Um, that's the comparison that they make to a physical illness, is like having third degrees on every single bit of your body. Um. Actually, you can stick with it. I want so discovering who you are with the diagnosis and who you are today and what that means. I mean, you 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 say it better than me. So. <laughs> um, I 
I've sort of touched on little bits and pieces of this. Um, living with mental health, it's difficult and you sort of learn ways to deal with it as you go. Things get a little bit easier. Um, I've always told the kids at school that life doesn't get any easier, you just get better at dealing with it. And it's a very similar um, comparison. So I've got a job now <clears throat> um, and I've got a house that I rent um, and I've got a boyfriend and I've managed to keep him around for almost a year now. So fingers crossed that keeps going. Um, it is possible to live with a mental illness. It is possible to flourish with a mental illness. It just depends on your circumstance really. And some of it's just luck that I ended up getting the right medication and that I ended up getting the housing. Um, but it's also a lot of a lot, a lot, a lot of talking and a lot, a lot of therapy and a lot, a lot of um, communication with people and I still haven't perfected it. I still have days that I'm nuts. I still have days that I blow up over nothing and um, it's still difficult but it's definitely a lot easier than it was before. Ah, yeah, so I've, I've done a talk like this before and someone asked me if you could go back and change everything um, Would you choose to not have a mental illness? But I think knowing what I do now and where I am now I don't think I'd go back and change it Because this is who I am now and I'm pretty happy with where I am at the moment It's still difficult, but I think we all have days that we wake up and things are really difficult um, and I like where I'm going and I think even though having a mental illness has been really really difficult it gave me the opportunity to tear back all that I was and start afresh which a lot of people don't get a chance to do until they leave high school when they go crap what am I going to do now um, and that's when they start exploring who they are that's why a lot of people are traveling that's why a lot of people um, are trying different uni courses I sort of got the chance to do that at 16 and it means that I'm a lot more I don't have the word that I'm looking for I, I feel a lot better with where I am and where am I where I'm going than a couple of the other people that I went to school with that I've caught up with who still aren't really sure where they're going so uh, there's a blessing in there <coughs> Okay, so as I've said at the very beginning, mental health doesn't just impact the person, it impacts those that are around who walk with them and the family that, that is around them, their friends, their church, all get impacted by the people who have mental health and who suffer through it for a period of time. Um, some of the things, some of the thoughts I wrote down um, in that regard, whatever it is. One of the things I mentioned earlier was, I was, it's, I think Hannah has said it and I will say it, maintaining a relationship or a connection with people in those spaces is really important. And 
that it be a, be a connection that is built on um, just being there for them, hearing them, giving them a chance to talk, giving them a chance to just be there, letting them choose when they're comfortable or when they're uncomfortable. I mean, we've had the work through Hannah coming over for dinner and then saying, no, I've had enough, I've got to go, and just disappearing. Um, if you ever watch the movie um, Silver Lining Playbooks, uh, the, the lady in that, the young woman in that, she, I think, has diagnosed a BPD, and so she's a, she, she gives some of those examples, you know, just emotions change very quickly, something's happened, I can't handle it anymore, I've just got to go. And so we've had to learn that, uh, let Hannah have some space but when she does want to have connection, be there for her, not, not correcting her, not controlling her, but giving her some space to be her and to allow her to be her. Um, learning to love the person as they are with all their pluses and minuses. Um, and it's a bit harder sometimes with people with mental health. But she's still the same beautiful girl and I still love her very much and still have great dreams for what God can do with her in the future and um, she has a dream of being an advocate and um, helping people with mental health and this is part, start of, part of that journey for her I think in talking it out and sharing some of the thoughts. Um, so being there and not disconnecting, um, understanding it, so get it, try and understand it, um, try and get material on it. But don't try it, you know, Hannah will say there's a book out there on BPD that's about uh, how, to, how to live with someone uh, while walking on eggshells. She says that's more about how to actually manage yourself rather than actually build a walking with relationships. So there's much better books that talk about how do you actually walk with someone with mental health rather than actually deal with them and put boundaries around them. Um, so where does the church fit? I think... This is a marginalised group that struggles to connect with the church, struggles to find church spaces that are welcoming and belonging. Um, the struggle, and depending on what mental health issues you have, sometimes, you know, they can be very annoying. Sometimes they can be very disruptive. Sometimes um, they can find, be overwhelmed by space. Um, Imagine, you know, you have issues of um, belonging and issues of anxiety and you walk into some churches and you get overwhelmed by a welcoming party that wants to come and, you know, wrap your arms around you and do it and they go, whoa, you know, and they feel that overwhelmed and pressured and almost driven away by something like that. So we need to think, how, how do I work with people that maybe aren't, in that space where that is really nice, uh, you know, and it doesn't create a belonging space. For people who are struggling with identity and with abandonment and all those sorts of feelings, anxiety, how do we create a safe space so that they're not overwhelmed, that they uh, can do things on their terms, that they can make the connections in the way that they would like to, not how we think that they need to connect to that space. Um, do you want to add some more to that? what's loud music and stuff for you and um, so I think mine's more about youth um, the youth group 
One of the difficult things was the youth leaders were not feeling like they were engaging their youth enough um, because it would get to praise and worship time and half of them would be sitting because some of them were there just to be with their friends um, or they'd be out in another room um, and so they decided to once you were in the room you stayed in the room we shut the door you're not allowed out everyone has to stand up and I found that quite difficult um, the music was quite loud for me and their praying for my headaches to go away wasn't working um, and I was told that I had to sit in the room with the loud music and I had to stand up um, I was feeling quite dizzy and quite overwhelmed because youth group, lots of lights, lots of sound, lots of jumping around. I sort of wanted to sit back and be in that space um, in my own bubble, I guess. And there wasn't really a space for that. And I ended up leaving the youth group because I was essentially told if you can't fit what we need you to do to be here, then you shouldn't keep coming. Um, and so in a youth group, I think having safe spaces and allowing people to worship and take part in a way that makes them feel comfortable is something that would be important for me. So even now, Hannah, going into uh, some churches which have got loud music and a lot of action, she finds that quite ang creating anxiety and still creates issues for her. Um, and yet, going to a quiet, conservative church where you actually spend a lot more time maybe having to talk about things and, and being more intense, that's a bit overwhelming as well. So she struggled to find a real space on a regular basis that this is a church that I feel that I really belong in. So I don't have an instant answer for that, but it's something I think the church has a real opportunity. There's, um, there's a group that Hannah connected with that I got to know some of those young people who are seriously wanting answers about God, trying to make sense of who they are and where God is in the picture and don't want easy answers but they do want a space where they can come and maybe get a sense that someone loves them and cares about them in a safe way that allows them to continue to be who they are. Hannah talks about, oh actually I'll get you to say it, the story about people coming when you're at mind and what and the questions they asked, yeah. Um, when, we, when I was living in the units with Mind Australia, um, every now and then they'd have a worker come in, they would bring a guest. If they had a meeting, they'd have all the managers from the region, um, or even if someone was looking at moving in. The first question anyone ever asked me or someone else who was living there was, so, what do you do for work? Or, what do you do with yourself? And the thing is, a lot of the people in that space um, didn't have work, they didn't have study. Um, their big achievement of the day was that they got out of bed and they'd put on pants that day and that they'd spoken to someone else without punching them or crying and running away. Um, and we just have such a big idea that you are what you do. Um, and I was still an okay person when I didn't have a job yet and when I wasn't studying yet I still had things that made me really awesome and I got out of bed some days and there were other days that I didn't but then the next day I'd try again um, and I think just being really careful about what questions you're asking them 
because even just a question as simple as what do you do for work can bring back all of that I don't have a job I don't work I can barely function and today was a really good day and now I feel terrible and I want to go home got a couple of minutes um, a lot of stuff there do you have do I have a couple of questions that you might want to put to Hannah or Um, I didn't find that very helpful because it just meant that I tried to hide it from them more. When you're in the addiction cycle, it's not as simple as I really care about you and I'm going to stop. Um, and so sometimes that can mean that people will pull away from you more because they feel so guilty. Um, I found some really helpful ways of responding to self-harm were that I had one friend who went and researched it and came back and went, I've done all this research and we can try these methods. And that meant a lot to me because it wasn't just, I want you to stop because I feel uncomfortable. I want you to feel stop because you're hurting yourself. Um, it was a, I care about you and I want to help you through this. Um, and also just being, you know, it's okay, you messed up this time but that's all right and we'll try to make it a bigger gap next time um and making sure that they're safe that they're um cleaning up properly that they're you know using first aid properly um yeah I, i've had another family that i know of that the doctor eventually said to them you need to go out and you need to buy sterile knives for her like the blades because she's going to keep doing it and if you keep taking things off of her we're worried that she's going to injure herself more um, and so sometimes it's just about this is what you need to do right now and we'll keep working on it and we'll find something that works better um, and I think having coping mechanisms it's a coping mechanism and the fact that you can go, I'm not doing okay and I need to do something to cope right now is a really good big first step. No, you're not doing it in the healthiest way, but now you get to practice other ways and find something else that's more suitable. You've gotten to the point where you can identify that you're not doing well and respond to that. And that's a really big first step that's good to acknowledge. Uh, Any other questions? Yeah. I guess one, one of the, just doing workshops like this is one part of that process of getting this out. Um, Hannah also came with me to um, Eastern College and we, we were taught at the youth work class there and talked to the students there about some of this stuff. So, that, so we different places like that. And um, yeah, but do you want to answer that as well? 
Anything? That's a really big question. I I guess the I would agree that this is sort of the beginning of my journey towards, um, I guess, helping change the ideas of how things work. Even just having individual conversations with people um, about mental health, about how Christianity works in with that, about my own personal story. Um, and that's about the best answer I have for you, but you've definitely given me some more things to think about. So thank you. Okay, one more. Anybody? No? someone who's okay with physical touch uh, there are certain people who aren't very good with hugs my mum is one of them um, so I, as long as you ask beforehand then yes I would say that that would be a really really good yeah I, I think sometimes it's difficult to conceive something bigger than you and having it in front of you when you're feeling a bit lost can be really reassuring. Definitely. Thank you. Okay. I just really want to thank you for being a great audience and uh, listening to our story. And it's still an ongoing story. And we're still day by day learning new things. And there are times, as I said, when we don't quite connect in other days when we're fantastic and so um, thank you Anna for being so very courageous in sharing that film. This was one of many conversations recorded live at Surrender 16. We hope you found this podcast inspiring and thought provoking. Please check in with us at surrender.org.au for more resources and opportunities to engage and connect with our wider movement.